Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next installment of the top 100 games of all time, according to me, Mark. That's my name. We're doing top 40 through 21, the penultimate episode of this countdown. We got some awesome games here. Here with me today, Orion. Hey, what's up? And Matt. Hello. Matt growing the beard back. It looks great. Why, thank you. I'm trying uh, to keep it a little like uh, sharper around the edges. That's my strategy. No, it's not. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> you try to blur out all the edges. What are edges? What is... I just let it do its thing. Okay. I mean, that's the point of a beard, Renaissance, right? Renaissance, man. I don't think that's what that means. <laughs> you take a laissez-faire attitude to your beard? <laughs> like a man before they invented razors. Yeah, like that. There you go. A Renaissance man of sorts. I'm pretty sure they had razors during the Renaissance. I don't know, maybe. I'm I think. 100% sure they had razors during the Renaissance. <laughs> That's only like, what, 400 years ago? More yeah. Like five or 600. Okay. Still. It's, it's basically You would know same. history better than I would. When do you think razors were invented? Like, when did... I'm sure there was a straight-edge razor for a long time. Yeah, like, uh, I bet you like 1500 BC, somewhere. Yeah, somewhere, right? Yeah. Well, once you hit metals, right? Yeah. You make knives, and that's close enough. I don't know. I don't want to shave my face with, like, a bronze razor. I mean, someone had the idea, I'm sure. That's weird to think about, though. You think about, like... other methods of removing hair. No, but you think of, like, the ancient Egyptians. They all had beards, right? I suppose. I always imagine pictures of people being clean shaven, but Yeah. But if they didn't have like if they didn't have razors. If it's like three thousand BC or something, they probably didn't have razors, right? Yeah, probably. You know what there aren't enough board games about? Growing beards. We gotta make one. Yeah. I'll slap it on the list. On the list. On the list. Or you added. Could slap it on some mechanics that just don't have a good theme, because we, we know that's the best way to just do theme. Is that how you do it? Speaking of growing beards. Oh, no. I don't know where this is going. <laughs> you can't see this one flying in like a. Well, now I know what like it is. Like roughly 90 miles an hour. Okay, go ahead with your hockey talk. I forgot. I thought it was over. No, the, the Stanley Cup finals are going on now. It is game four tonight. Sadly, after one period, the Capitals are up 3 nothing. Boo. Yeah, boo his. Or if you're from Washington, maybe you're excited. But. We feel I feel good for Ovechkin. Ovechkin is one of those. Are they Washington State or DC? DC. Okay. Capitals, Mark. Well, yeah, but you know, sometimes it could be. <laughs> you're right. The Capitals. I don't. Could be set in wherever the capital of Washington is. Olympia. 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 Yeah. <laughs> There's could, nothing in Olympia. Could, it could literally be yeah, like the been. capital letters. Yeah, there you go. It could Ve- be a Vegas? T- topography thing. Ve- yeah, let's talk about some board games. <laughs> We've got a handful of people watching us ramble about nonsense, so good for you to hang on here. But uh, we're, as you probably know, we are broadcasting these countdowns live for the world. Potentially billions of people. Potentially, yeah. Potentially. Potentially. I mean, Do you think YouTube's infrastructure could handle a billion people? I mean, we're doing YouTube and Twitch, so I mean... Get half throwing a, half I a mean, billion on each. You basically have all the combined resources of Amazon and Google behind you. So yeah, I'm more powerful than the kings of past. 
What are you doing for us, Microsoft? They just bought GitHub today. Yeah. Or over the weekend or something. Yeah, but the internet yeah. doesn't seem Wait, really? like that. Yeah, Microsoft uh, bought GitHub. Well, I just had to use Skype the other day, so I'm down on Microsoft. <laughs> anyway, what else I was like, oh yeah, we're streaming this. We are streaming this. And it's kind of a taste, if you will, of what our patrons get every other week on our main podcast. So if you want to watch our main podcast live like this, because it's very exciting, I think, I... I've never been on the watching end of it, but I'm, I'm assuming that I'm very charismatic. I've been on the exciting. watching end, but I have to say, after about 15 minutes, I chose the hockey game over you. That's pretty good. I, given what I know about you, yeah, 15 fi- minutes yeah, yeah. of me over hockey, yeah. I'll take it. Anyways, if you want to watch all of our podcasts live, including the one this Thursday that you will not have access to otherwise, it's a very special episode. Eric Roos, designer of Spirit Island, is going to be here in physical form. In this very room. He's going to sit down in one of these chairs. We should check and make sure they're not one of the broken chairs. And yeah, we're going to talk with him about... broken sp- chairs off in the corner here. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're strategically blocking them, Orion. <laughs> That's our broken chair pile. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, we'll make sure he sits on one of the chairs that does work. And uh, we're going to talk with him about Spirit Island. It's going to be awesome, and yeah, you can only see that if you're a patron, so hop on that. Yeah, great game. Also, I mean, you'll hear for, it later. Spoiler for another game higher on the list. I mean, for that game higher on the list. It's going to be higher on the list, yeah. I mean, you, you'll be able to hear it on the regular podcast, but you won't get the, the live energy. The behind the scenes sneak All peek. of our fawning, <laughs> I'll have to edit out, <laughs> and like... Basic, just thanking him for making the game over and over. You edit out all awkwardness, right? All of it. Yeah. There's there's no awkwardness in the Thoughtful Gamer podcast. All right. Only tangents. <laughs> Only many, many tangents. It's fine. All right, let's go to the list. As I said before, we're doing number 40 through 21. Statistically, there's a massive jump in the kind of weight category of this part of the list. Getting more complex. They're getting significantly more complex, nearly a full whole number on the board game geek scale. Is this the most complex, 20? No, the the top one is the most complex. So the other ones have averaged like at, let's see here, 2.6, and then last times was 2.46. That was the lowest weight rating. And now we're jumping all the way up to 3.23 on average. So... I mean, I knew this before, but I tend to like heavier games. Not that they're all heavier games, but we'll start off with number 40, which is a pretty heavy game, and that is Terra Mystica. Ooh. A delightful, very colorful game that basically you just sit there and do lots of calculations, but also it has this fantasy thing going on. The more I think about Terra Mystica, like it was one of the first games that we kind of bought when we really got into the hobby, and... As I look back on it after playing a lot of Euro games, I realize it is kind of an outlier. Like, it's a, it's definitely a heavy Euro game with, like, basically no randomness outside the setup. Literally no randomness outside the setup. But it has the kind of American heart to it with, like, different races that have very different strategies and, unfortunately, sometimes a little bit uh, under or overpowered. It's got... Like these bright colors and tons of pieces and a big production value. It kind of started, at least for us, I don't know if it was the first one to do this, 
but it started the the trend where you have the player board, you have the pieces on it, and you manipulate the pieces on your board, and that's become a big thing. You know, thankfully so. It's an awesome mechanism. Yeah, I think until Scythe, I think this was my favorite player board. Yeah, I mean, now they got the double cardboard thing. This didn't have that innovation, but it it started the idea, I believe. I haven't played the newest version of Gaia Project, but I do love Terra Mystica. It's got a lot of really cool, subtle things going on. The variability in the setup really changes how you have to address each game, uh, especially once you kind of know what you're doing. You have to really you, focus on so, what kind of bonus, yeah, build, building you're, bonuses you're you get. You're scoring points in different rounds in different ways. Well, each round will have a bonus for basically doing a different thing, and that's completely randomized. So, so that might tweak the order that you want to approach things. Right. And then I think... And it also really impacts your uh, race choice. Because too, yeah. some, some of the races really want to build their stronghold in turn one. So if you draw a starting setup with the stronghold in turn one and the priest bonus tile, then maybe the swarmlings are a much better pick in that game. Or I forget if that's actually good for them, but something like that. Yeah, nomads want to build a stronghold and turn sure. one sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Mark, looking back, as far as our experience with board games, this is kind of a unique thing. I remember this was one of the few board games that we played at my house a lot before we just yeah a few times played at your place. <laughs> yeah, but I like the last week I think or a couple of weeks ago we talked to Trey Chambers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we're talking about that Ace Cemetery. Yeah, this was one of the first euros that embrace that asymmetry really with with different races just being approaching the game slightly differently yeah it's really fun to kind of figure out a race and some of them are a lot harder than others the other thing it does is is the terrain and the way you get spatial bonuses in, in according to where other players are i think it is something that's pretty unique yeah i love that part of the game where it's it's a game where you're kind of trying to do your own thing, but, but you, it you gives want, you, you do significant. It else. <laughs> yeah, it gives you significant bonuses for just being right next to each other, but you don't want them to get in your way, and that creates a lot of tension. The downside, of course, on that is that it really only works best with four or five players. Yeah. Three, the map's too wide open; yeah. you don't get a lot of that. But it when it does so many... work, it works really well. It's weird because it's it's a heavy game. It takes a long time to play. But it has so many different interesting things going on. Even even the fact that like every game there's like one or two races to get a certain spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and that's or there's not... different parts of the map like that yeah. certain certain factions just don't yeah. care about or they really care about. I remember but... like the halflings want to be on that like rightmost island, and, and that... the mermaids want to control like all the rivers and bounce yeah, around yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I like that there's so much going on in the game. It's not about it's not primarily about the spatial controlling like ticket to ride getting to something first. But the game usually has one or two of those moments. There's just so much going on. Yeah, yeah. Great game that is Terra Mystica number 40 on my list. Number 39 moving to a completely different style of game and frankly different than anything I have ever played and this is a hard one to rate and a hard one to rank because I think it's honestly a really brilliant game design, but I don't know if I ever want to play it again. That is Fog of Love. Oh. A two-player game that says on the box that 
it is a game about like being in a romantic comedy. Yeah. And that is completely so different than my experience from the game. Like you could play that game and just laugh and laugh and laugh. I played the game and I was like psychologically fraught with peril. Absolutely. It's so hard to explain. It's a game about being in a relationship with another person and you're presented with these kind of moments in time and you have to make decisions based off of that. And there's a whole system for how that affects how your personality develops or distinguishes itself from your partner and how much happiness you have. And then also how well you work with the other person in a relationship. And then there are all these end goals, which is so cool. Your win or loss condition is sometimes manipulated, but ultimately determined by you through the course of the game. Yeah. Which is really cool. And you're just going through these very simple exercises where basically you and your partner will get a list of options in a different in different scenarios and you just simultaneously reveal what you choose and based on the, your choices different attributes and happiness levels and things will shift around but it ultimately paints this portrait of like a story of a relationship going throughout time and then either succeeding or failing like i've had games where and i played this with with amber we had games where things just worked out really well and our characters ended up in a long-term relationship. We had another game where from the beginning, we realized that both of our people's personalities were just completely, absolutely at odds with each other. And we were just doomed to failure. And ultimately I think one of us ended up hitting a win condition only because the other person like created and chose a, kind of crisis situation that forced the other one to literally change their personality to adapt to it, which was wild. So one comment is, this is one of the most innovative games I feel like I've played in the last couple of years. The way that it models real life personality and relationships is, is, is shocking. It's, It's shocking how, how much of a sense of both two individuals and a combined relationship it gives you both in the way that as far as game design goes both in the public information and the hidden information that you have and models of the human psyche it profounds maybe not the the right word but i i end up having a similar experience with this game that i would kind of like a shakespearean comedy or tragedy in that you really you learn something about yourself in exploring these other people yeah, it, it creates at least, I don't know what it would be like playing with like a random person or like someone who's not my wife, but at least in the games we played, like the the distinction between our characters and us weren't always incredibly distinct at times, which was very odd. It, it creates weird dynamics, like psychological yeah, dynamics, but in the whole thing is just fought over the psychological it's a game that you have to come and be willing to kind of expose your inner self a little bit. I played with my Ember and was surprised actually how well we were able to play our characters because my Ember really doesn't like role playing. And, and this was the game that allowed her to role play better than any other 
experience we've had. Yeah, because um, it doesn't have a lot of commitment like a traditional role playing game, and it's, I don't. It's kind yeah. of halfway in between a board game and a role playing game. Yeah, you can play it as a straight up mechanical board game, surprisingly well. I mean, I think that's not what makes it great. I think it. You could. I don't. It depends on. I, I think it literally depends on your personality as a person whether or not you could do that. Yeah, sure. But as a board game, when you're manipulating these kind of shared character fulfillment traits while sometimes changing yourself or changing your partner, that manipulation of of these personality tokens kind of going around the board, like the really good mechanics. It's not it's not like a heavy game or anything. And that's that's ultimately not what it's about. But I think for a board game modeling a relationship, it's it's remarkable. Yeah, I'm not completely sold on you as the on the mechanics in isolation from the idea of the game. I I, just, I don't think I, it I've works. Been in, I was in a situation with Bubba where it came down to like realizing like we had to do some maneuvering in order to get the late game maneuvering to get the the personality tokens to line up to fulfill our destinies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing super heavy euro or whatever but we ended up ha- having some really interesting plays and we swung a victory in the end yeah. so this would be a very wet game then this is as dank as it gets absolutely yeah it's i mean like i said it's halfway between a role-playing game yeah. and a board game yeah. it's it has to be that way or else it, i think it doesn't work very well but i think it it succeeds it's absolutely fascinating game fog of love number 39 number 38 is also a non-dried game and it is robinson crusoe a game of survival and being poisoned by plants and bugs and eaten by animals and and collecting resources painfully slowly yeah painfully slowly (laughs) probably the most famous game from portal games in ignacy trevichek and i think it's it's funnier than fog of love i'll I'll say that it's oftentimes hilarious game where you're stuck on a desert island or some kind of island a tropical island people always say desert island but then they show like palm trees and stuff like yeah lots of vines like no it's tropical anyway you're stuck on an island you have to survive and to survive you have to allocate your workers or your pieces your your actions in the game extremely carefully and take lots of risks because everything is out to get you it has this cool morale system that that works really well with you know as you drop morale you start losing resources and losing lives the coolest part of the game is the encounter deck basically where you go off to try to do something you have an encounter and you make a decision and a lot of the times the decisions you make will shuffle that card back into the cards that are drawn at the end of the round whatever those are called the progressions or story cards or whatever and oftentimes there will be severe consequences for whatever you chose before so if you chose something that gave you a benefit or something or you took a, a bigger risk uh, it could come back to bite you sometimes literally whenever <laughs> that comes back around but despite having an infuriating rulebook even the second edition like the rulebook substantially better it's still not great yeah and sometimes being a bit fiddly it's one of those games where you have to make rule calls ad hoc a lot of the times and just say okay we'll make this harder for us you know we'll... the rule decision is generally going to be against the players so you kind of have to go with that and then just have a good time trying to figure out how to scramble and survive. We've been through, what, maybe half the scenario so far or a little over half? 
Yeah. And uh, they varied from surprisingly easy to I literally don't know how anyone could ever beat that difficult. But they've all been really, really fun to play. Yeah, I think I played the first two, which were both pretty easy. No, I played maybe one and three, and I think we crushed the first two. And then I played one that was like a volcano island with a bunch of ash falling everywhere. And it just choked. Like That we, one was insane. That was so hard. Yeah, that's the one I remember. we we got to try that again. I've heard the cannibal one is just stupidly difficult. Yeah. Hmm. So first of all, it's a cooperative game. It's Is it the heaviest cooperative game we have? Maybe Spirit Island. Spirit is Island would be heavier. It's heavier, yeah. Well, yeah. this game's a lot more fiddly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spirit Island's actually more yeah, yeah. complex strategically. Right, yeah. But the way it does story is, is so good for a lot of the ways you describe. First of all, there are scenarios which puts like kind of the big picture story and then that the encounter deck is just brilliant in the way that it it allows the players to choose between consequences now or later and in just one of the most interesting ways of kind of a story emerges from that in addition to like like you might have you might find berries and eat them and great you you're nourished for now but you have diarrhea later but the way that that plays out it's kind of an emergent story which i think is super cool yeah, it creates stories, which is really neat, and that's kind of how you have to approach it. And, and, because... and, and that's in the context of this fairly heavy game, which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, like infinite variability too, because there are just so many a huge stack of cards. The, the decks yeah, are and you roll dice for big. almost every action you do. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a story creation machine. It, it creates stories. It creates interesting, fun, hilarious situations, and that's. How you have to approach it, I think, if you approach it entirely from a strategic perspective, there's like things you got to know with regards to like certain tools you can construct, and you may be sitting there thinking, "Why is that important? I've never seen that any anywhere." And then you realize it's very important for a lot of the cards in the deck that maybe you haven't seen. So stuff like that that can make it kind of frustrating if you're really trying to win, but if you kind of just let the game happen to you, it's really, really engrossing. Yeah, I was just thinking the other day, why haven't we... I mean, I think it, that maybe this lives at your house, Matt, and that's why we haven't pulled that's it That's why we haven't but... played it. It's not here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I took this back. Not that there's any room on our shelves right now. Yeah, well, that too, but it's a game I would like to play. All right. Next, number 37, a two-player game that I've gotten to play a couple of times, and I found it eminently enjoyable, and that is Seven Wonders Duel. Oh, the duel. Wow, the, you really like this. Huh? I really, really like huh. Seven Wonders Duel, and I just need to buy it at some point. Yeah, because I haven't played it because you don't own it. Yeah, sorry. I played it with a couple of different people. It is, as the name implies, the two-player version of the great game Seven Wonders, which may or may not be appearing higher on this list. But it takes kind of the stuff you're familiar with Seven Wonders, and I think it does a great job of translating that into a two-player experience where you're drafting from this kind of preset overlapping grid of cards of which you can see like half of them face up and the other ones are face down. So the big point of the game is that as you draft cards from this display, you can unlock new cards for your opponent to be able to select. So there's a whole lot of tension and brinksmanship on trying to maybe delay taking a specific card because you don't want 
your opponent to be able to take the one behind it and then trying to figure out if you can put them into a situation where they're kind of forced to unlock the card that you want to take all the while doing all the cool set collection and like resource management stuff that you would expect in a seven wonders game. And I think that kind of mind game with your opponent is really cool. Yeah. The tempo like tug of war is crazy in this game and uh, it really gives so much power to, uh, I think, a couple of the wonders let you take two cards in a row. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, because you can get a wonder and then get your turn back again. Yeah, yeah, which can really kind of swap that tempo because normally that's one of the that's one of the big tensions or mechanics you have to play within a two or dynamics in a two player game is that you have a turn and then they have a turn and then you have a turn and you go back and forth. And I think this is, you know. It goes all the way back to class, you know, the classic abstract games like chess and Go, where a good portion of the strategy is forcing your opponent into a position where they have to make a bad move. And you can do the same thing here if there's one really game-breaking card for you. Maybe it's the seventh science card, or maybe it's you know uh, something that gives you a much, uh, or maybe maybe you both want it, or maybe it's just really good for you. And being able to manipulate that kind of tempo back and forth is is pretty interesting. Yeah, and I think that's really the heart of the game is that. Like, the rest of it, I don't think works quite as well as the the original game. Is it a similar scoring? Are, are all the scoring mechanisms pretty much the same? Simplified a hair. So, military and science are both alternative win conditions. Gotcha. So, if you do enough military, you just win. And if you do enough science, you just win. If you, you get one of every win. science, you just win. Yeah. yeah. But I can't imagine... You'd have to play between very two competent yeah. players. I don't think either one of those would ever happen. Yeah. But you can utilize the threat of them to position yourself in really interesting ways, and that's what they're really there for. And then it cuts out cuts out something. It simplifies a couple of the other categories of cards. It makes wonders more dynamic because you can get multiple wonders, and you draft them at the beginning, like you're the ones available to you. Yeah. And there's. Then also with the science, I think there's these little bonus chips that will give you certain. Oh yeah, bonuses. every every time you get a pair of sciences, that's right. I think then you get one of these science bonuses that can vary from irrelevant to extremely impactful, depending on your strategy and the game state. Yeah, it's simplified a bit in terms of resources, but it's got enough otherwise to make that part of the game interesting. But then once you understand all of those systems, it really ends up becoming a tight two-player battle and that's what i find really interesting about it because i think it's got to be hard to take a game that's so kind of essentially multiplayer and then turn it into something that's so essentially two-player yeah no it's definitely interesting i've only played it once with you and i'm not entirely sure what i think i did enjoy it but i'm not sure if i've decided whether or not it's good yet yeah i've played it i played it the one time with you and i kyle marquini and i played it like three times in a row when I was back at his house one time, because I found it so, so interesting. Maybe I would get tired of it after a while, and you kind of figure it out, or it ends up being like, okay, it's a lot of it's determined by the randomness of the board state, but for now, I think it's it's a very enjoyable game. Number 36 is not nearly as simple as Seven Wonders Duel. It is also specifically a three-player game, and that is the GMT game Churchill, a delightful and sometimes infuriating, if you're Orion, look at the diplomatic state between the United States, England, and the USSR during World War II. 
Yeah, we usually play this, or I usually play this with you and Amber, and I almost invariably ended end up very frustrated for two reasons. One is that we have yet to get the scoring right until the end. Or we haven't been able to track the scoring in real time correctly yes, until it, the yes, end. Yes, that, yeah. And so it's hard to, that makes it hard to know what position you are because you will play differently if you are in the lead or if you are in the last. I think I, I saw that someone made either... Like someone a, made a system for it or a, like a board or a you know, some it, better way of tracking it. It's either it, like but. in browser or it's like a Google Sheets thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, that's the one which is something that just we keep messing it up. Um, it is a fairly complex scoring table, but we just keep messing it up. And the other reason is that Amber and I think almost diametrically opposed to each other in the way we approach strategy. And so it is so difficult for me to understand the things that she will value in a way that I can actually win the tug of wars that I want, because the way that the debates work is that you can't just overpower the other two players. You can maybe do that and get one issue, but then you will lose the debate and lose all the other issues, which is not going to is not sustainable over the course of the game you have to be somewhat close and i i just i struggle so much to know how to spend my my influence in the debates and i think mark benefits a lot from that <laughs> i don't find the game particularly frustrating i feel, i think i i can see it pretty well what's cool about churchill is that it's a again a specifically three player design and that's really hard to do because you get into these diplomacy game problems if you have a lot of three player games where you know someone jumps in the lead and two people gang up on them and then beat them down and then one of those two wins right churchill you have that but everything you can do to influence or harm someone is like a step removed like it's all indirect like, you can take some of their resources, but what's the real impact of that? You know, for them not having those resources in that round. And then everything everyone's doing in terms of the war is mutually beneficial. Like, you want to end the war, and everyone's trying to do that, but you want it to play out in a certain way. And you want to spend resources specifically so that you want everyone else to spend resources on the war so that you can spend resources on, like, getting colonies and stuff or like winning global issue debates and so everything's kind of tangential to the main goal but it's all the tangential stuff you're fighting over how does the war play out like if you don't do it right can the axis powers win yeah the axis can win one of the players will end up i think it's more that you don't win the war in time yeah like you don't win in 45 yeah and I think the trajectory is kind of assumed such that the allies, allies are going to win eventually, but it's more about the political situation at the end of 1945 mm-hmm. or when the war ends, which might be sooner than that. Right. And so there's these what have been, I guess, controversial end game conditions that you can trigger that sometimes like there can be big point swings with a couple of dice rolls at the end if you let one of the powers or if one of the powers ends up too far ahead at the end of the game which can be interesting because it kind of simulates the other two teaming up post war it's basically you're 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 actively doing all of this stuff to kind of project into what post world war 2 will look like and the game kind of simulates that right at the end so you want it to be mostly 
a very close game with you narrowly winning at the end. And that's how you're going to achieve victory because you want to have the most power, but not enough that the other two will kind of put aside their differences, hmm. which is, I mean, I more than anything, it's just a fascinating design. And I, I really, really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, I haven't played this, but it, um, from from the uh, post game descriptions that you've you've given, it, it certainly sounds really fascinating. I just, I mean, all the GMT games are so interesting in the way that it's a, a tug a tug of war between different players that just want different things. Well, this and, and one, so this one is is just more about that. Churchill specifically, I think, more than any game I've ever played, is set up with. Almost all of its rules designed to create very, very specific incentives for each of the factions. There's all, there's like, what, 20 something different scoring things during the game. And they're all designed to kind of create the mindset among each of the the, the players similar to what their historical counterparts were thinking. Yeah, there's a lot of issues that two of the powers will care about. And the third will only care about in terms of helping the lower, you know, the the person in last place. Yeah. You got to play it sometime. I think you would find it very interesting. Yeah, I agree. We should set that up. Moving on to number 35, we have an old Euro classic from Freedom and Freeze, and that is Power Grid. A game that I keep wanting to try to bring back to the table. It's been a while. And it's just a fun game. Like, I remember when we got it, this is another one of our early ones we got around the time of Terra Mystica, I think. Yeah. And we thought, I think, it was a pretty heavy Euro game. But now as I look back and think about it, it seems fairly light compared to, like, you know, the kinds of games we play now. I think if we played it again, we'd find it a surprisingly easygoing experience. Although... It can be very cutthroat, especially in kind of the map. Yeah, that's that's the, more of the... the kind of like step up from ticket to ride route construction thing going on with the power stations and all that. It's can very be cutthroat, very mean. and you very much want to get your power. Like you want to buy the power plants in the most efficient way possible, and if someone messes you up on that, you know you're really it frustrated. It can be difficult. And, well, you got, or you got to like, you know, bid it up enough where it's going to hurt them. Like, yeah, pow- power grade is really dependent on the players playing the game to kind of balance all that out too. They, it's one of those games that gets very, very good when everyone has a knowledge of the game. Yeah. yeah. Because they're thinking on a deeper level about the mathematics of it all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was really great. We, we played this a lot when when we first had it. We didn't have a million games at that point in time. The thing that I was concerned about this game was that you could map it out too much once you really understood it. it was that, Towards the that late game, you can. I think yeah. the implications of what you're doing kind of in the early game can be difficult. But yeah, the, the end game can get really calculated. Yeah. The last turn, at least in several of our games, just comes down to counting... How much money do I have? How much money do they have? Yeah. Can I? How much can I spend on the power plant I need to win the game? Okay, I can spend two hundred dollars on this power plant. Yeah. And the question is, can they figure out that out, or do they have enough money to outbid you for it? The, but to me, the game's played all in the mid game in Power Grid. Yeah. No, it's that's I, I, the key yeah, part of the game. game. The end. I, I the it. end game kind of just plays out, right. but it's all about getting yourself in the position to win on the last turn. Yeah. Yeah. The resource system is awesome. 
Yeah, it simulates a market very accurately, uh, basic supply and demand curve that I wish more games would do that kind of thing, honestly. It's, 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 a, it's a simple system. I bet it wouldn't be too difficult to write a machine learning sort of algorithm to play this game. Because I think you could apply a point value to, or like an efficiency number to most of the actions in the game and be able to pretty much choose a optimal or close to optimal move each turn. I think in terms of auctions or even like the in terms of like how much you're willing to spend for a power plant, the power plant to target and how to expand the resource buying is pretty straightforward. I don't know. I I just I think the way the pieces fit together and this is not meant to be a detriment or a criticism of the game. I just thinking about the structure of it. I it feels like the sort of thing that you could write an algorithm to to play well. That makes sense. Yeah. It's just a delightful little game of trying to really outthink your opponents. Again, really critically in that mid-game part of it, which I think is is neat. The next one on the list is one I played recently and I found much more interesting than I thought it would be. And that is number 34, Mombasa. A game with honestly kind of an odd like traditional colonial theme which seemed out of place in 2017 or 2016 or whatever. Whenever this game was made, it's a fairly new game. But the mechanisms of the game, I thought, were really, really fascinating. I don't know a thing about this game. We played it at one of the uh, small one-day conventions, I think. Yeah, it's about like trying... It's like British colonialism in Africa. The thing with this game is that when you first look at it, you're like, wow, there's so much different stuff going on. And then by the end of the, the game... Or maybe like two-thirds of the way through the game, depending on the player, you kind of like see how it fits together and you start, you can start actually planning ahead and putting, putting the different, the different systems together to make an efficient what, turn. What are, what are the systems? Is this like Th- a this resource is, this management This has a unique game? system. Of yeah, how explain you the, card the card system. You'll be so, able to explain it. It's very original. Yeah. The way you have a hand of cards that you're going to play and those will be your actions and you're going to play them face down and then you all simultaneously reveal... And then you'll go around in turn resolving one card at a time, or not necessarily one card, one action at a time, and flipping cards over to essentially expend them to do that action. But the way you play them is that you have these slots, or if it was a programming game, you might call them registers, on your on your player board. And so you have up to five tracks, and you play these cards face down, one in each, in each uh, slot. And then at the end of your turn, you discard all the cards from the bottom to the top but they stay in the same slot. So there's a discard slot for each at the at the top for each play slot at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And then after you've discarded, you get to pick up all of the cards in one of those discard slots back to your hand. Interesting. So wow. you're trying to kind of where you play things in the bottom matters because you you're planning ahead in terms of which ones you'll be able yeah, to so pick up. Yeah, so like from and, the beginning and, and of the, the hand game, you're creating to pick up. From the beginning of the game, you might be planning a certain turn towards the end of the game or at least trying to yes. or at least trying very to. difficult <laughs> but it, it kind of forces you to diversify or swap okay. hand structure every you know couple rounds because maybe you want to do a heavy explore round so you play out all your helmets well now all your helmets are spread out in different discard piles and you can't get them all back in one or two rounds you have to slowly pick them up again so maybe you play less exploration and keep them focused in like 
two registers or slots so that you can pick them up again and focus on picking up those cards. So you put like your highest value card always in the middle and then your next highest card in slot four and so on. That's awesome. That sounds super cool. That's yeah. And then maybe and then you the, design it so that you have this kind of dump pile where you put all the bad cards you never yeah, want to see again. Right. And then halfway through the game, you realize that pile is actually the best one to pick up now. And you've ruined everything, <laughs> which may <laughs> the, the be other, what happened to me. The other thing I wanted to say is that there's kind of four to five different kind of areas that you're trying to accumulate progress on. So there's this stamp book system where you will play these accountants or secretaries um, and they will basically let you take these books from the board and then you place them in your ledger and they require you to have a certain number of resources on a round to pass that slot. Kind of, you're, you're kind of building this track and then you progress up it, but you have to have a certain amount of resources. So you're trying to chain together like a bunch of coffee things in a row and then you play a couple coffee and your secretary or your accountant or bookkeep bookkeeper maybe yeah bookkeeper i think and then you can jump over like three books because the higher up you get you get points for that and then there's an also another track where every time you collect a diamond you um you move up this diamond track and then when you hit a certain uh, threshold on each of those tracks you unlock your fourth and fifth play slot oh okay so that controls how many Cards you can play. Yeah, so you round. start with only yeah. three slots, and then you can unlock two more based on... Do you gain cards throughout the game? Yes. Yes, there's a whole oh, system where you're okay. buying new cards. You can invest in, in like four different companies yeah. that will give you passive bonuses as they gain value and also be able to cash yeah. in for more points at yeah. the end. So It's you'll, a you'll game expand, where there's like yeah. five different systems all going on. Yeah. It sounds really fascinating. But they all interlock. They all interlock yeah. very intuitively, I thought. It didn't seem like you're playing a bunch of different mini games. It felt like there are a lot of different avenues for trying to get to where you wanted to go. Yeah, and I think we kind of went for different strategies. If I remember right, you and I went heavy on like the books and diamonds. I, I went heavy you, on diamonds. You went heavy on diamonds. I went yeah. heavy on books and diamonds. Art, who ended up winning, went just crazy all in on this one uh, exploration. Uh, one of the one of the companies. One of the companies, the trade companies yeah. or exploration companies, and got like eighty points from that in a. 160 point game or something or 100 points yeah. from that. it was he got so many points from that and the company thing is important because that alongside with kind of the the bonuses you get for pushing out into different parts of africa is where all the interaction lies or a lot of the interaction lies where you can block people from being able to kind of traverse the the continent in different ways and then you kind of want to piggyback on the successful companies or focus and like cut out a company's value from under someone at the last second. It's just a game of many systems, I guess. Yeah. And but it works very well. Yep. I I thought it was it was, it was a very good really game really fun sure. game. That really is Mombasa number 34 on the list. Moving on to number 33, a game that is now I feel like I'm rating it too highly because it's like everyone's favorite game in the world. And I'm like, it's not that good. It's still great, but it's not it's the fine. best game ever. To say? I mean, it's my 33rd favorite game of all time. I think it's really good, but it's not like the best game. Anyways, I'm talking about Scythe, which is a great game. Like, it's great. And I love it. And I love all the little <laughs> systems and the player boards and the way you take your little quick actions and you can plan out ahead a lot and all the mechs and the exploration and all the little systems in Scythe. It's just not the best game. 
yeah. the best game will be. I'm surprised you, know, later you have podcast. it this high. I really exactly. like it. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I want to play it more, I but Ben keeps vetoing it. He doesn't like it. Yeah, I thought I liked it the most of all of us. You probably um, do. But yeah, this this is a pretty. This is probably where I'd have it. Yeah, no, this is a good game. I enjoyed it a lot. It's, I think I can see kind of where it's a game where there's all this cool stuff happening, and the end just kind of fizzles. Well, now we got the expansion we haven't played with yet. That We've got can airships. We've we air freaking ships. airships that we're not playing games with, Mark. Well, it's not my fault. I keep suggesting it. Anyways, airships and alternative end conditions to the game and alternative scoring conditions yeah. that you can choose from, which look yeah, really, yeah. really cool. So I think Scythe is an interesting study in expectations because I think when we went into Scythe, maybe you, Mark, or I don't know, some people just see the mechs, which are awesome, and and really think of it as like, oh, this is going to be a head-to-head, we're going to have some mech wars, that's what it's going to be about. And and it's one of those games where military is more a threat than an actual... Well, it has to be used very precisely. It's yeah. not about the military. The military has to be used very precisely in order to give yourself yeah. time to if you're like, expect- pull ahead of if, someone who has a better engine. If your than you. expectation is that this is going to be just like a a meritrash battle royale type of thing, then it's not going to be satisfying. Yeah, because you're going to be disappointed you, if that's your expectation yeah. going in. I think, honestly, my... So the the thing that stood out to me going in was the player board. So all the economic systems are so brilliantly conveyed just by all of the, the graphic design and, in particular, the player boards and the way that you, you uncover things and cover other things up on your player boards. First time I went went into the game i was just taken by all that and so to me it just became a puzzle of how am i going to most efficiently how how am i going to push my engine yeah well that's really what the game is and that's what it's more it's a puzzle game it's an economic like efficiency engine puzzle game of how you string together your actions in the best way in order to get the most value out of the fewest number of actions and in that sense it's 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 brilliant it's such a fun game oh yeah it, it's so fun to you get to figure move that cubes out and puzzle from the top out. of a board to the bottom of the board, and it feels so good. It feels so good. It's it's yeah. the best. It's the best feeling in board gaming. In, yeah, in, <laughs> it's the best. Um, <laughs> as far as replayability and kind of asymmetry, it does a really great job too. Because because each yeah, of, each, it's really subtle though. It's subtle. It is. It, it it's subtle. But as you are figuring out your engine, each action that you take has a top action and a bottom action. And there are four top actions, four bottom actions, but on each player board, they're everyone has the, Everyone has the same four top and four bottom actions. Right, But yeah. they're all but they're, slightly different. They're paired differently. And they're costed slightly differently. Yeah. Yeah, and that just ends up changing the way that you, you have to, to run your engine. Right, because you're looking for that efficiency edge. Yeah. So it's not enough to just always build mechs and send your workers out or something yeah. and that paired to, with yeah. the the character that you get right is, is a different variability and that determines where you start on the map which changes things yeah it's great and now they have the there's a new expansion coming out that it has like 11 modules and a campaign system or something wow yeah it's i can't great, wait we haven't played it a lot recently i i can't wait to get back into it yeah we gotta play with those those airships speaking of airships number 32 is star wars armada 
game entirely about getting a bunch of awesome looking spaceships on the table and then going pew 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 and shooting them down and it's great you got to make the pew pew noises or you know some kind of facsimile of yeah if you you have a fighter squadron yeah i mean if you're shooting with capital ships they better not be making pew pew noises i mean it's kind of funny if you go pew pew (laughs) it's like a star destroyer i like the like the yeah I imagine the opening scene of Star Wars 3 where they have the canyons and they like slam backwards against the bulkhead and people yes, go flying. and that. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. Sure. Whatever you want but to imagine. These are the images that Armada <laughs> yes. will immediately evoke in you. Yeah. And honestly, it's, it's the only like true minis game that I really want to play i've never been interested in any other one just because the sculpts are so cool i don't have to paint them i don't have to assemble them they look amazing i thought you had painted all of the imperial star destroyers no (laughs) what i don't get the joke matt they're just gray they're just yeah but they're they're textured imperial star destroyers are just gray yeah but they're, they're textured like yeah they're beautiful Okay, whatever. But if you painted them, they would look exactly how they look in gray plastic. It was a no. good joke. No, they they wouldn't look the same. There's lots of detail on those. No, I think the point is if you painted them, not no. just if you generally painted them. It's no, a gray if triangle. I painted them. <laughs> okay, it's a if textured I painted gray them, triangle. They would look far worse than how they look. Okay, they look. You're the, underestimating the paint job of whoever painted these things. The minis in some are beautiful factory. and really make the game what it is. Yeah, they make the game great, and the customization's great. the The best thing about the game, honestly, is how it simulates the momentum and weight of the bigger ships, where you kind of have to plan ahead on what your primary action's going to be longer when you have a larger ship and it's slower to turn so it might be moving very slowly you gotta plan what you're gonna think about three turns from now in a six turn game and by the time you get there you're like what was i thinking back then why did i even choose this i need to like turn but i can barely turn because i didn't choose the turning thing but it's just the slow lumbering ship and it's like well i guess i exposed its backside to the the space potato over here on the rebel side and that's gonna hurt and you get to roll lots of cool dice and do special abilities. And there's fun little damage cards. You know, it's a fantasy flight thing. It's got custom dice and lots of cards and stuff. It has but a it's, horrible double trench in the box. You know it's fantasy flight. Yeah, it's got the double trench. Which I, Is that worse or better than the single trench insert? I would prefer just an empty box. <laughs> yeah, me too. But, you know. <laughs> That's beside the point. It's what you get with fantasy flight. But, you know, given all the fantasy flight isms it has, it is... One of their better games, I think, certainly. The design is exactly what I want out of that kind of game. It's not too complicated, but it's got enough going on where I sit down to a game and I, I genuinely have to try to think about how to maneuver these things and end up doing it very poorly. Yeah, I like that it rewards good tactical play because thinking about like the formation of your capital ships and not exposing them to the enemy fire more than you have to and how to you know maneuver your ships on the battlefield and how to you know flank with one of your faster ships to hit shoot out their engines and keep your maybe as the imperials you want to keep a tight formation to guard like those inner edges of your space triangles and not let the space potato get between your space triangles 
And I love how I love the elaborate names we've created for these ships. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I've really enjoyed. You play the game and you're thinking about all this stuff, and then afterwards you go back and you kind of you see the broad like strokes of your different moves and like how you're like the arc that your ships took through the battle, and you can say that was a mistake. That is why I lost. Yeah, yeah. I will never do that again. And it actually teaches you some of these, you know, basic tactics. Well, and key to that, fundamental to that, is the rule that you have you shoot first and then you move. Yeah. So this is another game where, again, two-player game, two-player dynamic, you're trying to manipulate the tempo so that you have the advantage. So you want your enemy to move into range, to be out of range, and then move into range so that on your turn you can shoot them and then move maybe past them or out of an ideal firing arc. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it does a really good job at that. The fighter squadrons help with that because they're kind of pesky little mosquitoes flying around and, you know, badgering ships, and you got the... If you're going to play this game, you have to pick up the specialized fighters. Yeah, I recommend the, uh, what's it, the Rogues and Rebels pack? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Scout, scouts. Yeah. It's got, like, there, there's a Slave pack One and like, the Millennium Falcon exactly. and all those yeah. all those yeah, fun Boba ships. Boba Fett, and, uh, the Slave One and Millennium Falcon. But they're, Falcon, v- yeah. they're very significant. Yeah. They have a lot of very important powers. It, it, the game is, I mean, if you're a Star Wars fan, there's so much to eat up. But mechanically, it, it stands on it, its own, but... Well, when you have the Millennium Falcon out there, you'll have the card in, in front of you that gives, you know, whatever powers the Millennium Falcon does. And, and I forget what's special about that one in particular, but, but every, every fighter squadron could have something unique about it. And that all goes into the construction of your fleet, which is just another great part of the game is, is constructing the fleet mm-hmm. with all these interesting ships and captains and characters. Yeah, and it, it just looks amazing. That's number 32, Star Wars Armada. Number 31, a game that I know that I'll never play again, but it still was a great time, and that is Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Can't comment on Season 2 because we stopped playing it after a couple of months, so we got to go back to it at some point. But Season 1 was a very, very interesting game. Pandemic, the base game is not on my list. I think it's all right. I don't think it's an amazing game. But the legacy aspects of it made it genuinely interesting to me. And while I have some complaints about how they implemented the legacy parts of it, some of the things that happened during the the campaign felt unpredictable. And it's like, well, that awful thing happened to me based on the decision I made that I had no context for knowing whether or not that was a significant decision. But by and large, the changes that happened every session made the game kind of fresh and new and interesting each time yeah. and created a fun puzzle that was more interesting than the best ge- the base game of Pandemic by itself. Yeah, so if you like co-op games and you haven't played Pandemic Legacy, pick it up. It's, yeah. a, great, it's a great time. Also, I, I, it will force you to get over your perhaps horror of tearing up cards or permanently changing a board game. <laughs> Which I know for some people, including us, a few years Not ago, me. anathema. I I don't care honestly. I had a certain amount of glee in tearing up an old card, but yeah, it, it was a s- spiritual experience. Um, <laughs> I think we all went on a journey. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any like rare games here. Like, if one of my games, like if if I accidentally <laughs> tore up the card in one of my games, I wouldn't like die. If it was a good enough game, I'd just buy a new copy or. You know, buy so, a used copy and just for that card or something. 
so again, Trey Chambers, I think, when we talked to him, said something about balance is a lot less important in co-op games. So I think that's something that... Um, Interplayer balance. Like if one person's um, way more significant, we, we, that's we what he meant. We were more talking about interplayer balance, but also the challenge as a whole is something you're you're taking on together. So I, yeah, I don't know. I think I think co- co-op games can get away with being more or less difficult in a wider range because if you win together, you win together. If you lose together, you lose together. Mm-hmm. So pandemic. Legacy, I think, throughout the 12 months of gameplay, sometimes feels really easy, sometimes feels impossibly difficult. But the way that it presents it to to the players, the way that it unfolds, is is just one of the the coolest board gaming experiences that I've had. And it it can do that because it's in the cooperative setting. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And we haven't played a competitive legacy game yet i guess well we just started charterstone which is one that's yeah. very different i think well we've only played it the one time but i think what pandemic legacy has going for it is that yeah it can seem a bit unfair in parts but in the end like you're you're measuring it up against this like arbitrary point scale that just pops up at the end anyways and you're like what's this for that's nonsense like the point isn't necessarily to beat the game or achieve a high score the point is just playing it out yeah and it does that without sacrificing any amount of strategy in fact i think it's in a lot of cases more interesting strategically (laughs) than base pandemic yeah other than the moments that you alluded to where something will change and you couldn't have predicted it other than those moments the way that the game evolves improves pandemic oh yeah in in most cases i mean it's still got the same stuff but there's just more of it and it was more layered and throughout you're you're making different decisions as you go so it doesn't get as old yeah you're making more higher level decisions about strategy and how you're what characters you're choosing you have some control over building those characters yeah you also get some customization and new actions and things like that Mm -hmm. yeah Anyways, enough about legacy games. Let's move on to a more traditional kind of connoisseur game. Chess? No, not chess. Not that. No, not that traditional. Pull back to like traditional, like hardcore Euro games. Catan. No, not Catan. It's not going to make the list. Number thirty is Tzolkin. Tzolkin. There's nothing traditional about Tzolkin. Okay. Yeah, you're you're right. Tzolkin's very (laughs) novel, but it's still. A like resource exchange, feed your workers, worker placement game. It just has these awesome gears on it that you turn and everything rotates as gears do and it changes time and it rotates everything. And I'm not explaining this game well. It's a game where everything is excruciatingly difficult to plan out because on your turn you either have to place a number of workers from your pool that you have onto one of the or onto the gears or take away workers from those gears and then gain the reward next to the space that they're on but you can't do nothing you can't do both of those things so it's all about planning through time and then the gears just illustrate that progression of time very easily and besides that it's kind of your basic medium level euro stuff but 
the way it visualizes the progression of time is so awesome. And I really am loving Tzolkin. It also works great at every player account. Like two, three, or four hmm. players works equally well, I think. Also, I, I should point out that this is the game that, that went up on my list the highest. This advanced 14 spots. It was 44 last year. Well, I think you've said this is the game that you played online and we're just like a- absolutely wrecked. Oh, yeah. So I leveled Zulkin's nuts. That was interesting to me. I've, I've only played with you guys and we were, I'm sure, very mediocre at it. No, like when I feel like I've done a pretty good job at Zulkin, like what are our high scores basically when we play like 60 to 80 points? Sounds about right. Yeah, the the good players are getting double to triple that. It's insane. Yeah. Like, they're comprehending the game on a comp- such a different level than I am. But if you ignore that, it's just a delicious puzzle. Like, it's you look at it, and it looks beautiful. The art's so good in that game. There's, there's enough systems where you can focus on different things. You can take different strategic paths. And then you just have to sit there and then just figure out the timing of everything and then not waste a turn because the the gear in the center that tracks the whole progress of the game, it makes one rotation. It moves so much faster than you think it is yeah. that it's going to be. And the game's over before you realize it. And you just got to kind of squeeze out every bit of efficiency. The unique thing that Tzolkin brings to the Euro game world is a super importance of time. The way that it, it makes time, the progression of time, the turning of the gear, just kind of a, a, a central part of the game, really feels unique. Yeah, um, no, I, I completely agree. And that is why it's so high on my list. For a medium weight Euro, it's one of the top for me. There's not many above it here on the list. I remember when I played this, I thought this was a heavyweight. But I mean, if you really want to put the thought into it, it can be, It was <laughs> for sure. But to know how to play it, it's not too bad. Number 29, another Euro game we got to play just a, I don't know, maybe a month ago. That reminded me of how great it really is. And that is the first Vital Lacerda game on my list, Venus. Venus. A game of making wine in Portugal and trying to figure out how a very, very complicated wine judging competition actually works within the mechanisms of the game. I have to relearn that part of the game every single time. It's very odd. Besides that, though, it's a great game where you get, like, 12 actions for the whole game, and you got to squeeze, again, efficiency out of it. But, like what seems to be a staple of Lacerda's designs, beginning, middle, and end game are all kind of available to you at once. And you can kind of do those things in whatever, not whatever order you want, but I think it's perfectly feasible to, if, like, great production stuff isn't available to you right off the bat to snag some end game stuff or build up to something different than everyone else and then come back to the production it's it's also compact that you're trying to build your engine while planning for the late game at the same time well the thing is there's hardly like a mid game you have like your opening two mo- two or three moves to set up your whatever your estate but you, you could do that in the mid game though like you could you could use those opening couple of turns to do something else, you know, with whatever low value wine you have at the beginning and then jump on the vineyard production stuff in the mid game when everyone else is off doing something else. And I think it still kind of works. 
Because there's such a penalty for doing what other people are doing. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, maybe so. The thing that really stands out to me about this game is that there are kind of three main categories of victory points. There's, like, exporting your wine, there's the wine festival itself, and there's all the um, the bonuses in the upper corner. Right, um, yeah. And then I guess the fourth is kind of the bank, but that's a little bit less than the other Sure, two. yeah, yeah. And you can go for, like, any combination of two of those and do well. Mm-hmm. Or even maybe some of everything. Or you and, could, yeah, you could do a little bit of everything, yeah. But at least... In the number of times we've played it, we haven't found that one of those strategies is the dominant strategy. Right. And it's very much has that do what someone else isn't doing because there's not a lot of following actions or things like that in this game. Like in um, Lisboa, in that one, there's a lot more about following other people's actions. Sure, yeah, yeah. And in this, in, in Vinos, it's much more about churning out your own wine at the right time and not paying penalties for other people Um, sure yeah yeah and it's also about like trying to utilize like it's not just enough to put out great wine you have to use that wine in the best way possible it also has another thing that i think is kind of characteristic of lacerda at least of the three games of his that i've played that, yeah, you get 12 actions, but each of those actions could trigger something which triggers something which gives you some kind of bonus free action. And so the actions end up being a lot more complicated and you can kind of They're big do more with yeah. them than you would initially think, which expands the game above or beyond where you think it's going to go in terms of how much you're able to do. I should note here that I'm talking about the original version of the game. We do have the deluxe version that has... The newer, the 2015, the 2015 or 2016, like new version of the game, but we haven't played with that one yet. We've only played with the original version because it's more complicated and we want to feel badass like that. Intellectually superior. Yes. It's, it's, it's all ego basically, but I have heard that's the better version of the game. Anyway, I think it is kind of a crunchy delight and more obtuse than I think Lisboa and the Gallerist, but I think it's still a great game. It also has what I would kind of consider the trademark Lacerda in that all the actions, like, not overlap, but all of the systems intertwine. Yeah, and and they make a lot of thematic sense, except for the, the whole wine judging competition is still really strange to me. Like, it works, but it's a lot of steps to do very little, I feel like, in some senses. But you're right, everything kind of works together where... Especially the banking system, I think, is a big part of that. Yeah, the banking system is pretty cool. The banking system is really cool where you have to manipulate how much money is in your bank versus how much liquid cash you have. Yep. And everything kind of ties into that because you're trying not to go to the bank because that's like one of your rare, rare, precious actions. But sometimes you just have to go to the bank and like cash out or put in some money or whatever. Anyways, we're not explaining the game very well. That's Venos. If you like heavy Euro games, you should certainly try it. Number 28, we're going back to a theme here, and that is three-player GMT games. Next one on the list, also about World War II, Triumph and Tragedy, which we got to play a few months ago, and it reminded me of how much I really, really enjoy that game. Surprisingly simple, I think, for what it is. like it, it, it's, it's much simpler than it looks. It's a block war game where 
it has the best part of a block war game where your blocks are actually hidden from all the other players. So they can see the number of blocks you have, but they can't see how powerful those units are because they rotate. Or which type of unit. Or what type of unit they are. Yep. And you've got the three main powers in World War II, at least in the European theater, the Allies, the Germans, and the Soviets. And it has this kind of simple card-based system for doing things. And you can pursue scientific endeavors to increase your technology or develop the atomic bomb, which can is an, in, an end condition for the game. You can focus a lot on military, and you have to, every round, kind of divvy up how you're going to utilize those points. And it creates this kind of cool three-player tug-of-war tension where you're trying to not go to war, but at the same the time... You don't want to be the one that declares war. Yeah, you don't want to be the one that starts the war. But eventually, someone's probably going to start the war, but you don't necessarily have to. You're all kind of eyeing each other for the first half of the game. So this takes place prior to World War II. It's it's like 36 to 46, I think. Yeah. Okay. So it starts it's before got like, the it's war. It's got the pre-war build-up phase. Yeah. And then you declare war at some point, probably. I mean, there are incentives here and there to kind of start the war around when it started. But I think when we played before, the war didn't start to like 41, maybe? 42? Uh, it started later than 39, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But it's a block world war game. I haven't played this either. <laughs> oh, you gotta play this one, man. <laughs> we gotta have a three-player... GMT party. Yeah. It sounds like a party. <laughs> this is certainly, in my opinion, a far su- more... Well, not necessarily superior, but far more enjoyable three-player GMT World War II How do game. the blocks work with three players? Like You, you just kind of have to sit this, in a triangle yeah, yeah and these, just it's a big peak. It's a big map, and there's this little board, so you kind of... You see them from your angle, and then you point them... You, yeah, everyone points their blocks towards themselves. There's a bit of an otter system. Like, if you leaned over on your chair enough, you could probably see your partner's... Or yeah. the person over there is blocks, but you're not going to do that. You're not a Reminds bad person. Me when I cheated at Battleship as a small child, <laughs> <laughs> didn't everyone cheat at Battleship as a small child? I didn't. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> I won. I won legitimately at Battleship as a small child. I always was playing these strategies where I was trying to systematically like sound out the grid to find out where they could. Oh be. yeah, me too. And yeah, that would, it would never the most it efficient work. way. <laughs> well, we can talk about Battleship when it shows up higher on Mark's list. When, sure. When Battleship Legacy comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Triumph and Tragedy. I think it is a lot with its card system. Again, simpler than it seems. But recreates the tensions and the feelings and the, the brinksmanship around the pre-slash-during-World-War-II situation. And because you spend the early part of the game trying not to go to war, when war does finally break out, there is a lot of war happening on, like, the border of France and the border of Russia. <laughs> yeah, It, it as, really explodes. As opposed to other games, like, and this is unfair to compare them, but, like, Scythe, you want to have, like, one maybe two battles that are very surgical and precise to get a specific objective completed and out of the way and set your opponents back while not compromising your own engine. In this game, you spend a lot of time building up and you have this tension of not wanting to spend about twice as many resources as you have because on your turn you'll have so much production and each point of production can either be a new unit upgrading an existing unit one step or getting a new card from one of the two decks 
and there's the political deck which lets you extend your political reach to more countries and uh, secure resources and uh, population and uh, and territory eventually. And then there's the technology deck, which lets you improve your industry to improve your income, as well as giving you the technologies. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, I forgot to mention the kind of passive aggressive fighting over all the kind of auxiliary countries around yeah. the, the main powers we are battling over trying to like influence them and then eventually if you get them far enough they become like a protectorate and then get like annexed into your empire yeah which can be significant and give you more income and stuff so there's all this like political maneuvering going on but you have to spend resources to get the cards to be able to do that which is resources not going towards your technological buildup or your army buildup so it's a really cool sitting across the table staring at someone really suspensefully kind of game that's how i imagine it that's how i remember it from last time we played yeah we found that the war tends to go in about the same way it went in history how in we... that the axis and the allies will usually go to war first and the axis will crush france and then russia will come in to balance out the two front side and then depending on how people spent their resources or how much they spend on military production and useful techs will determine how well you do on the military front. How would you characterize the difference between this and Churchill? They're completely different. <laughs> yeah, Churchill. Churchill, you're... Churchill is like a, politi- a game about politics and these political debates where you're, you're playing cards to tug a war, uh, these issues away from the other players. And Triumph and Tragedy is a war game where you have this tug of war to secure resources, but you can't all play on the same countries. You only have the cards in your hand to play with. Well, the biggest distinction is that Churchill is a semi-cooperative game. <laughs> yeah, semi-cooperative. Mostly I uncooperative. Mean, you're all trying to win the war. And yeah. a lot of the debating is around the resource allocation towards winning the war. Like, what you're fighting over is all this kind of side stuff, but you're all ultimately kind of trying to go towards the same thing, just in a slightly different order than someone else. Triumph of Tragedy is just a three-player war game. Yeah. With a lot of card play and political and science stuff. That's the big distinction. Number 27, going back to another trend we've had on this list, back to Vital Lacerda, I have the Gallerist. The simplest of the three games that I'll mention that I played from him and one that is just a delight. It's about running an art gallery. It's got this really cool worker placement system where there are only four different spots on the board. And if you go to a spot someone else is on, they get bumped off and then they get like a little mini action because they got bumped off of that spot. And so... You're trying to do your thing, but you're also trying not to give someone a bunch of free actions or give them an action at the exact right time where they get to, like, jump ahead of you on something. But Yeah, you're you're almost always going to be giving someone else a bonus action, but you want to do it in such a way that is least helpful to them. Yeah, and what you're doing is, like, speculating on art, so you may sign or, like, discover a new artist, and then you get a contract on them. And then through various means, their reputation goes up, which increases the value of their art. But then maybe you've locked in a contract, you buy it for three money. And then, but when you buy their art for three money, it's actually worth 11. And then you can turn it around and then sell it for more. 
And you're kind of doing that by also building the prestige of your gallery. There's this whole push also, and pull thing with yeah, like the little meeples, little meeples. Yeah. into your gallery. It's it's a very weird geographic setup where you have this like common area where all the people get piled into, and then four identical looking art galleries that you're trying to pull them into yours. It's like it's like, it, hungry, hu- all, it's, it's like hungry, hungry, it's like hungry, hungry hippos. <laughs> All the art in the world was taking place on this one square. With yeah, basically. Art There's this large plaza in the middle where busloads of people get dropped off. And, and then it, your promotion. helicopter. Yeah, your uh, promotions try to coerce them to come into your gallery. Yeah. I think the funniest rule in the game is that, you know, you may have like in the, in the sort of like meat middle of the game, you may have like five or six little meeples in there. But if you sell one piece of art, one of the meeples buys it, and they have to leave. Yeah, they go back it's like, out to really? the plaza. <laughs> One of the five people in here, like they don't—they're not representing a larger population. No, they're actually fi- well. Yeah, there are five people in your gallery. It, it's pretty funny, but it's again the same kind of thing as Venus, where you have all the endgame bonuses that you could go after, like on turn one, and go after those kinds of things, and they give you other little bonuses. And you got your assistants that can help you out. Lots of different systems going on. But the main thing is that you want to buy low, sell high. And what do you think about it that way? It ends up being one of the of the three, the simplest of them. And I love the look of it. They apparently commissioned actual, like, original pieces of art to be put on these little cardboard pieces. Mm-hmm. And you can look up the artist at the back of the rule book. And... It's great. I love yeah, it. I love the gallerist. It's really fun. My only conundrum with this is whether I should buy this or Lisboa. Yeah, no. Could because I mean, one of them's higher than the other on this list. Yeah. Um, I wonder which one. Though maybe the one we haven't <laughs> talked about yet. Uh, <laughs> Don't come I, in here with that deduction. I think they're both good. Unfortunately, they were both out of stock on cool stuff. So that made my decision very easy <laughs> to not make. <laughs> Not by either of them. Yeah. Well, that's the gallerist. It's a delight. Number 26, going back to a theme from, I don't know, what's the theme of this list? Heavy games. Yeah, heavy games, but also, I guess, from last list. Anyway, it's a coin game. It's Falling Sky. Woohoo! My favorite of the coin games, the uh, third one I've mentioned. Chicken Little is not in this game. No, but Caesar is? Oh, is Caesar? Yeah, that changes everything. Yep. Yeah, Caesar is. Yep, he is a boss. He's so good at moving troops and fighting. That uh, reminds fighting me of armies. Sir Digby Chicken Caesar, the greatest sketch ever, running sketch from... Number Wang is the best sketch. Number Wang's a close show. second for Mitchell and Webb. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen whatever, I don't remember which Mitch, I think it's that Mitchell and Webb look is the name of the show. Look up Number Wang. Yeah, it's Number Wang. <laughs> Look up the surprising adventures of Sir Digby Chicken Caesar. You will laugh for days. It's so funny. Anyways, Falling Sky is about Caesar trying to take over Gaul. And it's a four-player coin game, back like Fire in the Lake. And simpler than Fire in the Lake, certainly. And has such cool interactions. Again, not as cutthroat and insane as the interaction between south vietnam and the united states in fire in the lake but really fun subtle interactions between the three gallic tribes and the romans yeah this game has less directly passive aggressive or aggressively passive aggressive (laughs) mechanics where you're actually like forced to share resources and try to do different completely different things it's more that 
the faction's general incentives are structured in such a way that you tend to fight the two Gallic tribes and ally with the Adui as the Romans mm-hmm. and the uh, the two Gallic tribes or the the Celtics and the Belgics just have no reason to fight each other. And right, yeah. Because Rome is stronger militarily, it just makes sense for them to both kind of fight Rome. When I love how there's this incentive structure, or not incentive structure, just the mechanism of the, of the game cause Rome to kind of charge out and like cover half the map and then they all have to kind of retreat back. Yeah, you like plan your campaign for the year and you're like, we're gonna go stamp out those Belgics, those rebellious Belgics again, and then we have to get back to Rome to When you you do that, do you ever think am I the baddie? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's another Mitchell and Webb reference. Wow, we're, we're on a roll here. I gotta go watch some of those videos again. It's one of the funniest sketch shows ever. Anyways, yeah. And then the next year, you're like, oh my gosh, they've completely rebelled over in the Western Gaul. We have to go stamp out that rebellion and scatter all their tribes and gatherings and rebuild their forts. You know, a lot of the time you do your thing and you think you're doing great, and then the Germans come along and you're. They just and then they just uh, cut all your supply lines, and suddenly you're all starving in northern. France and you're you're stuck. Stupid Germans, <laughs> always get in the way. But stupid Germans always invading France. Come on, <laughs> come on. It's approachable and accessible enough that I don't feel like every time I'm playing it, I have to like relearn everything from scratch and then figure out what's going on. I can understand what's going on, and the yeah, interactions and the are connect- subtle and interesting. You can understand how you can manipulate the game state and kind of balance the game if you see someone getting too close to winning and so we tend to have really close tight exciting games of falling sky yep. and i think that's why i've ranked it the highest of the three coin games we have yep yeah no i, I it's agree. great it's good it's great yeah. play it if you like war games play it if you Absolutely. like uh, or just pick whatever coin game looks most interesting to you yeah, honestly if, if you've read uh caesar's what is it? What's the famous history book about that? There's one specifically called like Caesar's Campaign Against the Gauls or Caesar's Subjugation oh, okay. of the Gauls or something. It's set like in exactly it covers like those three years from his campaigns against Gaul and then to the point where he goes back and crosses the Rubicon and you know Ali yeah, yeah. to Est and you know the whole. I guarantee if you go yeah. look up the PDF of the rulebook for Falling Sky, I bet there's a list of book recommendations in the rulebook. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Number 25, going back to the Euro side of things, we got another winemaking game from Stonemeyer Games, Viticulture. Mm. Always a delight. Anytime now I'm talking about like a worker placement game, or if I'm thinking about what's a worker placement game, or what's a medium weight Euro game, this is now kind of the prototypical example that my brain immediately goes to, because it just does everything really well. It's got a lot of different strategies, it's got what you would expect from worker placement in terms of placing workers and and blocking spots. And it's got a nice system of progression from getting the grapes, planting the grapes in your, in your fields and then harvesting them and turning them into wine and selling them. That kind of constructs the spinal backbone for the game. And then it orbits all kinds of other little systems around that. That was a very odd metaphor I just made. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm no, going I, for interstellar I, 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 I was going to say, it's as soon fine. as you named this, like the, my first comment was going to be, this has kind of become our example game that we bring out all the time in different discussions and kind of, like you said, the, 
the prototypical or the yeah, example I, euro that we're like, well, viticulture, how does that compare to this I guess other we, thing? we just like it for a lot of very different reasons. Like you said, it's a good worker placement game. It does theme well. It, you know, it, it just kind of does everything well. <laughs> yeah. And I remember when I wrote my review about it, the thing I realized is that, I mean, we've played with Tuscany mostly recently, which adds a lot of complexity to the game, honestly. But, it, but the base game, like, kind of fairly simple in terms of Euro games, I think. Not because there's not a lot of mechanisms or not a lot of strategy, but because you can explain everything in terms of the theme. It's not yeah. like you could have to do this thing to do this thing. It's like you get grapes, you plant the grapes, you harvest the grapes. Like you just explain it in terms yeah. of like basic step by step of winemaking. You're, you could teach it, someone the game. It's so it, thematically integrated in that way that everything makes sense in terms of the theme. Yeah, we like to talk about the the cycle that you go through in any game that has any sort of an engine. Oh yeah, yeah. And the cycle is just literally the wine cycle. It's just agriculture. <laughs> it's just agriculture. Yeah. yeah. Which is interesting because we talk about thematic games and like bringing you into the mindset of the actor in the game. Viticulture, I don't think, does that particularly well, but it does do enough. It does do this other thing where you can just talk about the game in terms of the theme. It's yeah. more like know, the presentation. Does. I feel like a, I feel like that's a topic a, I could think about some more. The owner of a vineyard is kind of just letting nature do its thing. Just kind of you hire workers and tell yeah. them to go out. I yeah, suppose so. I don't think of it as like I am role playing the owner of this vineyard. I'm just like I'm just making wine. How do I make wine better than the other players? <laughs> <laughs> I would say like four someone who's really into competitive cutthroat euro games it may not be the best selection there's a good healthy dose of randomness in here especially with like what kind of grapes you draw on your first couple yeah. draws of grapes yeah and what what are the the visitors the different Visitor visitor cards, yeah. cards which are basically just like random action cards like you can get a good all, all, chain all, of all those the cards are i mean you're drawing cards from a deck and there's yeah. inherent randomness in that and it, those are weighted heavily enough that they can make a noticeable impact in how your game goes. Yeah, so to me, it's not the most competitive game in that sense, but it's always a delight to play and just kind of figure out your strategy. And then when you add Tuscany, it just piles on a whole bunch of other stuff that makes it more yeah. more avenues, of, of it, strategic avenues and different ways to get points and ways to kind of get around situations in which you get stuck and it looks beautiful. I have to. There's only the, one. Stonemeyer does such a good pro job producing. Well, yeah, just games. a great production from Stonemeyer, but also the art by Beth Sobel is beautiful. Like she's the only board game artist whose name I can remember, <laughs> and it's because of games like Viticulture. They look great, and, and a lot of times I'm like, "Wow, what is that great art?" And it's it's Beth. What about so. Ryan Lockett? Come on. Oh yeah. Well, I think of him more as a designer now. That's fair. Yeah. Anyways, one thing I have to give Viticulture credit for is the uh, the Grande worker. So I just <laughs> fatty, yeah, yeah, big fatty. It gives the kind of satisfying action denial of of a worker placement game where you want to go somewhere before other people can go there. But you have this one Grande worker that can go anywhere he wants, even if someone else has been been there. And and I think that that's a really well executed balance between worker placement where you're denying other people's spots but not as cutthroat as like agricola yeah absolutely agreed 
Number 24, we're going to the surprise or a surprise from PAX Unplugged last year. And that is Downforce. Downforce. Hilarious racing, I'd say party game from Restoration Games. It's an old design uh, from the 80s, I believe, from Wolfgang Kramer, I think, that they updated and redid and changed a couple of things because that's what Restoration Games does. And honestly, I think it is hilarious. And apparently, like, among the board game people, like the critics out there, some of them really like it, but by and large, people are like, yeah, it's pretty good. I'm like, this game's great. You just kind of, like, there's there's a good amount of strategy. There's the bidding thing. There's little passive powers. And ultimately, you're just trying to figure out the best way to, like, clog up the racetrack and then really frustrate other people. Yeah, and clog then, it up in a way that just marginally benefits you. Yeah, marginally benefit you and make the person next to you really angry and then laugh in their face and then secretly bet on this other card because you know you have a bunch of cards that'll help them out in the end. And just the visuals of this stupid car race going on where they all zoom out and then you get to a, a narrow spot and it kind of clogs up like a sink drain and then someone pushes through and a bunch of other cars go through that lane all the while you're trying to predict who's going to win and trying to get your car ahead. I think it's an absolute blast. I love Downforce. And it's a good length. So Yeah, it takes like 30 minutes. It's like 30 minutes. Yeah. And you can play with up to six players. It's a great party game. It's the perfect length for what it is. I'll say that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, I think, I know one person we talked to said that they were a little disappointed because they they kind of expected it or were hoping that it was this like heavier strategy game. And it's really not. It's just this, it's just a fun little racing game. No, it's it's a it's a taunting facilitator. It's designed so that you can mock your friends, and for that I love it. I played the expansion board at this last PAX mm-hmm. East. Did you get? Did you? Were you playing with us? I saw it. I didn't play yeah, that game yeah. though. And it kind of simultaneously excited me because these these two new boards just kind of create new new ways in which the cars can pile up and result in those situations where you're creating bottlenecks and taunting your friends in new and fun ways. But also, I it felt a little tired to me in a way that I was surprised. Hmm. To where I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm less certain of the replayability now than I thought I was a year ago when we played this at, or, or when we played this at PAX Unplugged. I don't know. I don't think I'll get tired of it, honestly. Yeah, but 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 then again, like it's a thirty-minute game where you have marginal strategy. I think that's a good way to yeah to, to describe the strategy of of playing cards to move to move the cards, balanced with the, the betting and and the bidding, uh, which which is really kind of what makes it brilliant that you're balancing those those things. Yeah, it's the kind of game where. I look forward to keeping it in my collection for like decades because I know when I have guests over, I can pull it out and it's going to be simple to teach them and they're going to have a blast. And yeah, when I have kids and they're like five, six, seven years old, I can pull this out and it's going to be simple enough for them to learn and it's going to look colorful Yeah, and they're going to have a blast blocking me on the roads. And then when we get tired at the end of the night, we're at 30 minutes before people want to go home we can pull it out and we're all going to have a great time like it's just it fits in so many situations 
And part of me when I say that is like, well, that's not that's not a legitimate like praise of the game, but it kind of is. Like yeah. it's not just that it fits into all those different spots, it's that it does that while still being fun for every one of those groups playing it. That's why I think it's great. I love it. Downforce number twenty four. Number twenty three kind of fits into the same slot though, the same kind of thing. Pull it out anytime. Easy to learn, easy to teach. Bananagrams. It's not bananagrams. Oh. Think of it does involve words though. And that's code names. The wow. next Vlada game on the list, number twenty three. A, a another party game. I think the highest party game on my list. I think those are the last two party games. Let's nice. see here. This slipped a Dep- bit from eh, last year. depends on your definition of party game. This slipped only five slots. Every game is a party game, which is on how boring you are. It's it, it dropped fewer slots than the new new editions above it, so it actually relatively increased. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Code names. Classic design now, like you know, if you can call a game that's what, three years old a classic, like a modern classic, this has gotta be one of them. Yeah, it's gotta be. Like in terms of popularity and how much it's influenced you know, games we're seeing that are coming out right now, the new hot one Decrypto is I mean would that exist without code names? Probably not. No, I think code names kind of defines a genre in the way that the resistance defines yeah. a genre. It kind of pockets this genre of word association guessing games and then opens up the door for lots of really cool variations on it. I don't know if there's much more to say. It's it's accessible to a lot of people and really interesting to a lot of people, but I think it's brilliant and kind of subtle ways it yeah where you can learn to be much better at it not by necessarily like having a better connection with the people who are guessing or who are giving clues but by manipulating the systems of the game slightly better in understanding how to think about not just the clues you're given but what the implications are of the clues that your opponents have given and so you can play it as casually or as competitively as you want. And it's still really fun to just guess words or come up with really cool clues. And it's so fun to see someone come up with a really clever, creative clue, even if it fails. Like, I love doing that. I'm horrible Absolutely. at code names. Absolutely. But I love trying to get those four yeah. word clues. And uh, every once in a blue moon, it works. <laughs> Yeah, we played Codenames, I guess, like a week and a half ago when I was visiting some friends in Pittsburgh, and it was a great time. We, uh, I, I had a moment where I, I gave what I thought was, I, I had a, I had two words that I was gonna, I was gonna link, and I had, I was like, I think this will be the right word, and then I was like, no, I'm gonna shift it like a couple steps towards this other word to make sure they get this one, because I'm pretty sure they'll connect it this way, and then, they started like naming things it could be and they named the assassin and I had this moment of panic where I was like, oh crap, you could, I suppose, connect it that with the word that I gave because I shifted it like a few kind of degrees over in the other direction. And, you know, it, thankfully it worked out in the end, but you just have to sit there with this terror and not show anything on your face. And yeah, it's, the, it's great. The, yeah. the panic when they start considering the assassin word's awful. It's so bad. I also way. gave what I thought was a brilliant clue. We had ghost and and crown, and I thought of Hamlet to connect them. Oh. But no one at the table on my team had read Hamlet, and they didn't know that there's a ghost in Hamlet. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So they were is, guessing, like... Is there a ghost in Macbeth, too? Maybe. I didn't know that one as well, though. Okay. Doesn't, doesn't 
Lady Macbeth yeah, come back she... as a ghost at one point? Oh, I forget that. Doesn't he soliloquize at her or something? Or no, she, she sees, sees a, ghost. a ghost. Yeah. I don't remember exactly how that plays out. But yeah, she's definitely seen. No. Ha- I hate Macbeth Co- anyway. Co- it's so dumb. Really? I That was one I of the Shakespeare's it. I had to read in high school. I read See, that one that was, and I, Julius Caesar. I enjoyed Macbeth in more than Hamlet in, 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 in high school. I just thought but, the whole prophecy thing was really dumb. I don't know. And then, Burnham Wood is awesome. And then it's out, it's, out damn spot it's, is awesome. Yeah, I now I, if I went back, I'd probably appreciate it. But I think it's it's the same thing as the this. Here's a tangent, but it's the same thing as in Lord of the Rings. I'm no man. Like it's that kind of like prophecy loophole stuff. I I roll my eyes at that so much. Yeah, and that's what the whole plot centered around in Macbeth. Basically. No, but yeah, yeah, but in Macbeth, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth take opposite trajectories, right? So it's, it's pl- been since it, high school. It, <laughs> I don't remember. It's playing with the kind of manly and womanly expectations. That makes sense. Anyways, yeah, we're talking the about Lord code of the Rings names. thing is stupid, though. I agree with that. Codenames brings out the best in everyone. The only reason to not own this game is if you only play solo games. Or if you hate fun. If, if you hate fun. We should notice, note that there's a Codenames duets that are... Is that right? Yes. Uh, which yeah. I think came out maybe last year. I, I haven't played it, but I've heard a lot of good things. I, I've... I don't remember the exact mechanisms, but it sounded very intriguing. Yeah. yeah, basically, from what I know, you're giving clues to the other side of the table, and you each have the... You're both looking at kind of a grid card, like a key card, to tell you which words are yours, and I think there are nine good words, and you each know six of them. Hmm. So there are three words that overlap, and then you each have like three assassins on your side of the card or something that you're trying to avoid. Interesting. But I've heard... I've heard all good things. So if you prefer playing two-player games, you can get you can still enjoy code names. Yeah, and if you can't read, you can get code name pictures. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you if, go. If you're illiterate, there's even a game for you there. I guess, if, or if you don't know English, like that's the way yeah, to go. Also, yeah, right. if yeah. you can only communicate in memes, there's like code names Avengers and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, all kinds of them. The next to last, the penultimate one on this list is number 22, Food Chain Magnate. A very, very silly game. While being, like, strategically heavy. Strategically heavy. And brutal. Very mean. Last time I played, I ended the game with $10. And I think I... Is this the one I won with $1,000? It was with Kyle and Elizabeth. Were you here for that one? I think I was. Yeah, you might have done that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> it's a very brutal game, very silly. Food chain magnate, you're building up your fast food empire and grabbing drinks from zeppelins and creating these managerial structures and like these family trees of managers of, on managers and everything, which is silly and hilarious. And you're just trying to sell food to people, but they're very, very picky. And then if they have gardens, they pay twice as much. Just none like of this in real makes, life. None also, of this makes sense. They can but have five very... desires if they have a garden, whereas only three yeah, if they don't. If they d- gardens are very important to this game. <laughs> and the Zeppelins deliver the drinks. 
They pick up the drinks. Oh, they pick up the drinks. They That's gather right. drinks they just, like, from the wild. They just up drinks from the whole city <laughs> sector that they drive over. So what? Do, like, drinks there, spring up in the wild. Are there, like, somewhere off the map, all the thirsty people go to get on the Zeppelins, and then they just drive around and, and get drink no, the you, drinks? No, the, the shops send out the Zeppelins to vacuum them all up from in, from the wild. Okay. From, then, from the side of the and, road. And then you, like, <laughs> plaster billboards outside people's house windows to force them to want your drinks. And so they will come to your restaurant and buy drinks from you. And then you build a garden next the, to their house so that they will pay you twice as much. But the, the artwork is, like, that brilliant, like... It's like 50s, 50s retro, yeah. Yeah, retro rah-rah capitalism kind of art that that just feeds into the these absurd situations oh yeah so it's perfectly. so hilarious <laughs> and yet at the same time like we said there's a lot of strategy in this game and you really want to think about what you're doing because you can just you can get when it's destroyed. all you can get destroyed. it's all like well not all zero sum but a lot of it's zero sum where like if you got a lower price than someone else you're taking all their potential income until you run out of stock yeah and it's not brutal in the way that you like invade someone's territory and destroy their armies it's that in the way that capitalism can be brutal and that you outcompete them and have a better are yeah. better positioned in the market and take all the money <laughs> yeah exactly and then it snowballs from there and you end up with a thousand dollars to ten but despite that you even have a great time when you're just noodling around with a very weird management structure and like a whole bunch of pizza chefs or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's a very silly game, a very brutal a bunch, game. Or just an and army a great of waitresses. One. Yeah, an army of waitresses. No one's gone for the all waitress strategy, but it's maybe viable. I don't know. It's hard to explain the appeal of this game other than that it's both very silly <laughs> and very interesting. Yeah, it's at a the great same game. time, and it's a great, great game. game, absolutely great game. I love it. Food chain magnate. You've said penultimate twice now in this podcast. I just want. It's to a great out. word. It's a wonderful word. <laughs> yeah, I love the word. Now the last one in this list. Finally, it's been a long one. We we've kind of gone on a bit, but I haven't minded. Number twenty one. You have to publish this one at like one point two speed. No, no, no. People can listen to my slow, laborious voice their leisure number 21 on the list battlestar galactica oh the board game which we got to play again a couple weeks ago bsg great game we've played the crap out of this game is a wonderful semi-cooperative experience that kind of captures battlestar galactica it really gets you into the theme of the game it's a game in which some of you are going to be cylons and the rest of you will be noble humans and that can change halfway through the game when maybe you'll become a Cylon. You, you were one all along and didn't know it. And you're trying to survive all these crises that are befalling the Battlestar Galactica and all the civilian ships surrounding it, fighting off Cylon spaceships and base stars and all that good stuff. Another fantasy flight game with a whole bunch of cards and goodies and little miniatures and... Everyone gets to play a different player, but at the core of the game, you have the crisis management system, which I think is really, really, really good Yeah, because you get this crisis. It has a certain point threshold for how much 
contribution total the group has to contribute to the resolving of this crisis, but only certain colors of cards and types of cards will be able to contribute to them. Any other colors of cards that are thrown into the pool will will impact that score negatively, but everything is put face down and then shuffled, and then there's even a deck that adds two cards at random, the Destiny deck, and then you see if you've resolved the crisis. It's both a really good game mechanism in that it allows there to be a lot of intrigue on who the humans are and who the Cylons are, and if someone's deliberately trying to throw the result or if everyone just kind of miscalculated, but also simulates kind of the panic that happens around a big crisis among a large group of people where you don't have perfect communication and everyone kind of has to pitch in as best as they can. Or if you're antagonistic towards it, you can kind of slip away and not help at all. Or maybe like, you know, loosen a bolt somewhere and, you know, cause something that worse to happen. Yeah. So it works both on a thematic and, and, and mechanical level. Yeah. And it's a great, great time. I love it. There's also three solid to great expansions for this game. Yeah, I think honest. I think the game's basically out of print right now. Sadly. Oh, really? I I, I know the expansions are. I think they, the rumor is they kind of lost the license to do more reprints or something, which is sad. But if you do want to get the Battlestar Galactica experience, I would recommend the second and third expansions. The first one's kind of optional. The Pegasus one. Exodus and Daybreak, I think, really improved the game. Yeah, Exodus mainly, that's the one with the extra board, the Cylon build-up board. Yeah, that that makes the, the attacking ship's system work better. Yeah. Again, much more mechanically and thematically better. Yeah, and then Daybreak has the new characters and I forget all the mechanics. The Mutineer, the balancing the mutineer. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so it right. just balances the game very well right? for uh, different player the counts. Base, the base game has some issues with certain player counts i think it's really best at maybe five five exactly exactly five five. whereas daybreak really makes it work at like four Four to seven and six maybe seven as well yeah Yeah, yeah. although i I will say the cylon leaders is we've played it a couple times and every time it just there's some aspects of all the expansions you don't really want to play with but there's some really critical ones in exodus and daybreak For sure. It's a great game. Yeah. Yeah. Another game where you can taunt your friends. You used to do it for a longer period of time than in Downforce. Yeah. Being a Cylon is just nerve-wracking and exhilarating. But being a human is like... It's a really fun game to try try to manage this spaceship where so many things are going wrong and, and you want to make it home. Which which is really cool. I mean, for, for me, this game was kind of like the game that kind of took over some of the time that we were playing uh, Resistance, because it's more of an uh, it's more of an actual game where you actually have something you're trying to achieve and you're managing these different dials um, of, of, of resource type things. Mm-hmm. But it has that same element of there's a traitor among us. That's just so much fun. Well, and the neat thing is that the game's still fun even if you took away the traitor thing right or in portions of the game where everyone's like in the first half of the game where everyone's reasonably certain that there isn't a cylon yet sometimes that's the most nerve-wracking thing is you think that 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 neither of the cylons have come out which is possible until halfway through yeah yeah 
And even then, it's challenging and interesting and lots of cool abilities and decisions you have to make. We've had games where I think it's all humans, but there's just so much paranoia going around that the humans really sabotage themselves. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, you can never be more than about 80% sure of anything. Yeah, that, until that's it's about like right. until it's actually revealed and you're like okay that lines up but yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i it could have actually it could have been mark instead of instead of matt anyways that's battlestar galactica i love it great game big giant take full, over the table game. take over the table full of messy stuff accusations calling each other toasters and i don't know what are, what are the other names for cylons in the series i can't remember oh i don't remember toaster was the main one I haven't seen all of it. Yeah. I only watched the first couple of seasons. I haven't seen any of it. Yeah. And you still love the game. Yeah, you don't have to oh, know yeah. this TV show <laughs> yeah. to, to love the game. Battlestar Galactic, number 21 on my list. That's the podcast for today. Join us in about two weeks for the final installment, my top 20 games of all time. That'll be very exciting. Remember to keep an eye on social media on Facebook, on Twitter, where I will be announcing when we are actually going to be recording that live so you can all watch it through youtube live or twitch are you gonna do any like honorable dishonorable mentions this time through no i don't think so i captured all the games i thought were interesting basically we can see what number 101 is i might have mentioned it already i just asked because last year i think you did a uh, around this time you did a chunk of honorable and dishonorable mentions yeah i mean 101's patchwork there you go It is the most honorable of the dishonorable mentions. Anyways, check out the website at thethoughtfulgamer.com for all kinds of fun reviews and stuff. I got an interview with the designer of this little tiny card game called Solo Game called Anxiety coming up on Friday uh, that I reviewed yesterday, which I think is a really cool interview that I did with him. So make sure to check that out. Next week, we'll be here with Eric Roos talking about Spirit Island, that wonderful, wonderful design. And don't forget, if you want to watch that live and you want to be part of our awesome community where we talk about board games and all kinds of fun stuff on our Discord channel, go to patreon.com slash thethoughtfulgamer. Help us stay afloat and be able to pay for our running costs for this podcast and for the Thoughtful Gamer Enterprise. And finally, I remembered it this time, remember to rate and review this podcast on iTunes to help us move up in whatever rankings there are in podcasts i don't know fun fact we discussed black hat seo on the discard a few days ago oh yeah is this this seems very white hat this is definitely white just begging pleading no this is saying if you like our podcast tell other people about it sure yeah do that that sounds very nice i don't think you're in danger of doing anything black hat I wouldn't even know if I did it. If you're doing any SEO, it's definitely not Black Hat. No, every time I type something, the WordPress like widget I got is like, this is not SEO compatible. Please like repeat your keywords more often. And I'm like, I didn't set any keywords. Then I think that's probably the problem. Yeah, I really rely on word of mouth here because I'm bad at social media and I don't put any effort into SEO because I know that ruins... The, the pros. I don't want anything influencing my writing. I don't want search results. Well, you do, but... I mean, I do, but I don't want to write... I used to do freelance writing for, like, websites and such, and the people who were really into SEO wanted a pile of garbage on their website just because it hit all their keywords, and that was no good. I like it when people tell their friends about the Thoughtful Gamers, so if you enjoy this, 
tell your friends. That's all I got to say. That, that's And that's it for the podcast. My throat's almost gone. I can barely talk. I sound weird in my own head. So bye, everyone. Peace out. Ha, 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 ha.